Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, is a man who asked for his podcast inheritance, went and squandered it, and now is coming back in shame, Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you, my friend? You know, I've been sleeping with pigs, or however the whole story goes. Etc. 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 And C and C. Email us at Roman Circus Pod. Uh, what is it? Podcast at Roman Circus Blog dot com. If you have that's any it. Comments from the side of our famous blog. <laughs> We're on Twitter at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey It's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry. Z A C Mabry. Find us on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, leave us a nice review. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash Roman Circus Pod. Zach, Herman Cain died today of COVID-19. He also had stage four He also had stage four cancer. But let's how many stages does cancer have? Five? Four or five? I don't know, but it point is that, you know That's very rest in peace. Sorry to see him go. But it was, like, pitched as he died of COVID. He died of COVID, but he also, like, I had to read the article to find out he had stage four cancer. I noticed that a lot of really kind-hearted people uh, dug through his tweets for anything, sort of expressing skepticism about COVID or masks. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that's kind of the norm at this point. Yeah, that is sad. He's dead. Regis Philbin is dead. Yeah. Irreplaceable man. Love him. Oh, no, Regis. Especially, I mean, obviously when we're all dead, we're all the same in dignity. We all are born with the yeah, same Yeah, everyone's the same in dignity. But, like, if, I, if if you told me somebody had to die and you, like, gave me a list of names, mm-hmm. Regis would be one of the last I'd pick. That's, yeah, you know? that's kind of, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He would, uh, obviously people have seen the tributes, but he would, like, do his show in New York in the morning and then fly out to do who wants to be a millionaire that evening in LA. Where, where was that? Was that, that was in LA. Yeah. So he's just doing, wow. He must've had so many miles. Right. Well, (laughs) yeah. I mean, there's a chance that he died like 60 years ago and was replaced by a robot and they just couldn't. I did see a YouTube video about that. Yeah. The robot just finally like didn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, beyond just COVID, I've noticed uh, an uptick in um, angry posting about President Trump, mm-hmm. Speaker Pelosi, mm-hmm. um, AOC, uh, mm-hmm. hydrochloroquine, mm-hmm. all these different things. All, are, um, all so of our does, heroes. Yeah. So it Including does seem like hydro- Facebook disease is pretty rampant this is a really bad season for facebook disease so inoculate yourself because there's no cure is that the second wave the second yeah this is is the second wave of of facebook disease yeah Mm -hmm. no i mean you let you scroll through your posts and it's like i wish i could just filter to just see engagement and baby announcements you know Mm -hmm. um but instead it's like just gonna leave this here and it's like a graph of either people who've been saved or killed by hydroxychloroquine or whatever Mm -hmm. and it's um it's like get alive people wow (laughs) you know i mean seriously though like i'm not i'm not saying you need 
to like do anything super interesting but you know maybe try to collect a a coin from each of the last 10 years or i don't i mean Ooh, just like find yeah. something to do with your time besides sharing well, this this stuff coins are there's a federal shortage in coins so maybe not now maybe wait did you see chick-fil-a was giving out free sandwiches if you gave them money in the form of coins yeah that was really odd i saw that there was yeah. like free food if you give them coins and it's like so they're providing their product in exchange for, money. for currency mm-hmm. you know it's 2020 we're all we're all out there grifting uh speaking of interesting figures we have brandon mcginley on the podcast today and we do before we get to the interview just a heads up uh we had some technical difficulties and he was nice enough to sit through those with us and the audio will change from basically what you're hearing now to all of us on zoom so see matt you've got to embrace here's what i'm trying to i'm going to teach you this and all the listeners it's called never complain never explain and like actually you can complain sometimes but the key is never explain okay well forget all of what i just said (laughs) just kidding no, it's good. Matt, Matt and Brandon were champs. Brandon was a champ of patience, and Matt was a technical mastermind to get this podcast put together. And I just kind of sat there texting, like, WTF, WTF, when are we starting? Yeah. So uh, we okay, all did our well, part. With that in mind, let's, uh, let's, see what, let's see what he has to say. Let's do it. Zach, I want to take you back to a forgotten time. It is... January 2018. Do you remember January 2018? Uh, I I do remember January 2018, actually. Yeah, it's it was kind of burned into time. my memory. See, it it just seared right into your memory. We did episode number four of the Roman Circus podcast, and we okay. did it, and we discussed an article called Detachment Parenting written by Brandon McGinley. Yes, and that was the first time we did a whole episode kind of centered around digesting like a single article. Right. Uh, so what happened is we did that. It blew up. The internet loved it. And everyone was like, we see something in this Brandon McGinley character. And we would like to hear more from him. And we would possibly even like to read a book of his one day. Now, I, again, yes. as we say normally... Uh, we're not saying that this podcast is responsible for this person, but we're not not saying that either. Right. It, like I've, it, I, I've heard people say that we invented Brandon McGinley. Like I, I don't, I don't have an opinion either other way. I've just heard, I've heard that. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, that's for, it's for other, it's for other smarter people to decide. But anyway, right. He is Catholic writer, speaker. You've seen and read him and heard him on this pod, heard about him on this podcast, but read him in the Catholic Herald, First Things. Uh, he has his new book out is called The Prodigal Church Restoring Catholic Tradition in an Age of Deception. And even more important than that, he is a father of four, soon to be five, Zach. That is the, most well currently five soon to be five out of the womb we should say yes yes good brandon mcginley brandon how are you doing all right matt how are you good i'm sorry it's taken uh again to pull back the curtain this has taken a little bit longer than we had hoped uh uh but you brandon is such a great guy that he's been with us through all the technical difficulties and uh uh, we're finally here before we 
before we break down the book, break down some other things, tell us what is it like to write a book? Because Zach and I, you know, we like to think we could write a book, but I'm not sure we could. So it's always fun talking to people who have done it. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it took me a while to to feel like it was something that I could do because, you mm-hmm. know, I, for a while, my writing was mostly, you know, articles of, uh, you know, from like several hundred words to a few thousand words. And then you start thinking about tens many, of many thousands words. of words. Yeah. Exactly. Tens of thousands of words. Billions and, that... and billions. <laughs> and you start to, to, to think about not even just the amount of time it would take, but just stitching it all together in something in a way that is cohesive. And honestly, for me, the thing that gave me the confidence that I could do it was, uh, was two things. Uh, one was uh, serving as an editor at EWTM publishing and editing books and getting used, just getting used to the length and, and realizing I, I, I going through the, going through the, the work that I was editing and being like, okay, you know, this, this length, when you actually go, work with it is not as intimidating as it seems. And then um, I also had been doing some ghostwriting. And so I, I can't talk about that. <laughs> but yeah. suffice to say, I got some experience writing at length. And that uh, that also gave we me can go ahead and so tell can... the people that actually you've been ghostwriting my tweets. Yeah. <laughs> oh no that, just can't wait that's should, no our contract uh, that, that is can't, that, so, yeah. that is not, that's not credit i want zach <laughs> yeah that's, that's true especially right now i got in trouble yesterday but, um, so with the with the book too i think the the other interesting question is just kind of enlighten us on the timeline because obviously the world has changed pretty drastically and you have that note that you know in the book that's like you know we'll know more about how covid impacted daily life and stuff later but like just to add context to the books, like when were you? I mostly you know, wrote what, it in February. Time? Yeah, I mostly wrote it in January and February, and um, right before everything happened. Right. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I had been an editor at EWTM Publishing um, until the uh, the end of last year, until until uh, basically Christmas of last year, and I was began a freelance career in in. January I had some other work to do in early January and basically from late January through February I wrote the book um and then everything happened um I that's that's an understatement like when right you, right when yeah everything yeah. happened like we, we well the, the like, funny thing is the crazy thing is is that like while I'm writing the book I'm like you know keeping an eye on the democratic primaries because these are like the interesting things that were happening then you know um mm. and now like it's it's who remembers Pete Pete Buttigieg? Buttigieg, you know yeah. like this was <laughs> yeah. this was a person who was an important person like a few months ago and now now everyone's yeah. he does an annoying tweet, but you know, it's, I know. Uh, and his hairline, the biggest tragedy is like, I guess his donors were propping up that hairline because it's so <laughs> bad now. And like, I, that just came out of nowhere. Yeah. So like, well, you know, running for president they, treatment or plugs, but like whatever it was required <laughs> funds that he clearly no longer has access to. Well, they say, they say that being president ages you. And I think running for president does it to you as well, except for yeah. Marianne Williamson, who is ageless. Ageless. Yes, she is. You know, I, I will say, like, Trump, I did notice he seems to have gone from, like, bright blonde hair to, to like, gray hair, kind of. Like, mm-hmm. well, I don't he know had that kind a... of strawberry thing going on, and now it's more champagne. Okay, yeah, there you go. That's <laughs> I don't, it's been interesting. His, uh, his aging pride, I guess I need to see some more side by sides, because it is crazy to see, 
um, like George W. Bush or Barack oh, yeah. Obama at the beginning oh, of their terms. They're like young men. I mean, and Obama much younger, but like George W. Bush was still a pretty young man when he started. And then by the end, it's like, who is this guy? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't, they haven't yeah. done the side by side, I guess, because, you know, the thing is with the side by sides is that they always make you feel a certain empathy for for the president, uh, regardless of his party. And, and and I don't I don't think anyone wants us to feel empathy for Trump. So we can't we can't do the side. <laughs> yeah, by I don't think pictures. Of, I don't think pictures of Trump evoke a lot of empathy as it is. But, you know, maybe right, right. for some, you know, um, that's a good point, though. There's a there's kind of a something happens when you see somebody get old you sort of feel sad for them um so okay so we the book though it's like would uh you know so far you'd say it has held like held up as far as you know with the world now like yeah yeah i mean you know, i wrote the I like wrote well, the I already, we already got our copies so sure you know, sure yeah i mean i wrote fans. the author's note because i felt like i needed to address the new reality in some way but even that was written in march i think think i think it i think i dated i think it was dated in late march um yeah. and uh and so because the thing needs needs to be edited and go to the proofreader and the, the whole process and it needs to be printed and so i you know there's just a there's a lag time in books that you don't have when you're tweeting <laughs> um mm -hmm. but uh oh, yeah but i think that the I, I do think you know and not even just like as a sales pitch i do think that that the uh, the accelerated confusion and instability and insanity in the world um, actually, you know, goes nicely with the theme of the book, which is the church embracing her, her distinctiveness, embracing her, um, her reality as a, the, the definition, in at least the heavenly sense of a sane institution of a stable institution. Um, uh -huh. And, uh, and so, and so I think that, uh, you know, and I, and I, I gesture towards this in the, in the author's note, but, um, and I think you can kind of see it throughout that the, uh, the thematically, you know, the nice thing about writing a book that is about the church being stability in an unstable world is that when the world gets more unstable, it gets more true. Oh yeah, that's for sure. One of the things I will right off the bat. Now this might be a, a brain worm of especially the three of us being so online you even talk about in your book you uh, like right off the bat you address the fact that you're probably online more than you should be which i thought <laughs> yeah. was i thought was refreshing because you're not trying to like come across as anybody you're not but it uh the restoring catholic tradition in an age of deception right off the bat to me now i know from having interacted with you very very minimally but uh i don't think that's a word minimally minimally yeah. uh but seeing like your tweets and other writings like so i know i know your mindset behind when you write restoring catholic tradition in an age of deception uh if i did not know you but i knew other catholic writers and bloggers i might think of that as something other than the way you're going to put it is that right. a th did you think about that when you were thinking of a title or what you wanted to come across because well, it might know, like i said yeah. it might be a product of being too much this online. is a big this is a big moment map but i what i've heard is that they never let the authors pick the title or the uh tagline see i'm i don't know these because i'm an idiot so uh, that, yeah so but, i participated in the process and the prodigal mm -hmm. church 
was one that I suggested actually kind of on a whim because I had two ideas and I felt like I should give a third and that Mm -hmm. was the third and that kind of emerged as like a European soccer promotion because it was yeah it was a phrase that I used in chapter two I elevated it to a (laughs) subheading then I elevated it to a chapter title yeah. And then it got, it, made, it hit the big time. Uh, I get it. It, it, ranks. it. At yeah. some point, the the title was in the final for the FA Cup, and people right. were like, "How did this thing?" I get it. I can talk yeah. a little. Soccer. So now the yeah. now now the subtitle the subtitle I did not write, and uh, you know at the end of the day there is a compromise that must must be reached in one's own head between mm-hmm. uh, substance and marketing. And yeah. uh, that the subtitle is, you know, that's a marketing subtitle. And well, it is. I mean, it is, it does hit, it does hit an emotion that sells. Like if we, we, Zach and I obviously, and I would assume yourself of, I actually, I know not assume I've seen it. Like we were not fans of Catholicism that is meant like gotcha Catholicism, but right. at the same own, time, own, but it, own the libs Catholicism, Catholicism yeah. anti-clerical Catholicism, and, but it, and you know, yeah. you have to, you you know, you know, one of the uh, perfectly honestly, one of the one of the the pieces of the calculation is see is when you throw that subtitle on the book part of the pieces of of the calculation is that you're going to get people who are looking for a crankier angrier book and they're not Mm -hmm. going to get that and i don't want them to get that i want them to be exposed to something that Mm -hmm. is less cranky that is more happy warrior that is more forward looking um yes sure so there is you know there is an element of there's an element of, of of you know so it's not intentionally in the sense that I didn't write the title, I didn't write the subtitle, but it is in, in my own mind, I'm thinking, you know, okay, one of the positives here is that they're going to be, there's going to be an element of, of kind of cranky readers who are going to be exposed to something more wholesome. <laughs> not cranky, right. yeah. Well, it's Zach and I, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as people who get weird, like get upset and kind of get, you know, angry at some things, but we try to be normal and cool about it. So there is a very much a way to address things of restoring Catholic tradition without being just wildly unpleasant. Right, right. Yeah. You know, that was one of the hardest chapters to write in the book because of, and and the, and the atmosphere has only gotten more, um, uh, kind of more toxic since, since I wrote it is, Mm -hmm. uh, was the chapter on, the, the visible church. There's there's a section on the church as an institution, and there's two chapters within that section. One on the visible church, one on the invisible church. That second mm-hmm. one's super important because we talk about the how the saints are more real and, and in a sense more present than we are. And remembering that, remembering we have constant access to them. They are the church too. They are even more the church. Mm-hmm. But it's important to talk about the institutional church here on earth. But I wanted to do so in a way that was honest and frank and candid without being just constantly pissy. And that yeah. was, you know, and that was that was one of the harder chapters to write. And, and you know, so I, there are some stories in that part of the, the chap in that part of the book. There are, you know, there are a little bit, um, you know, there are a bit there are giving examples from my own experience or things that I'm just generally familiar with. 
where you know the, institu- the institutional church does not come off well. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, I, I came across this wonderful, I forget if it was a, I think it was a letter. It was either a letter or a homily of St. John Chrysostom, where he talks about just how uh, hard and how harrowing the business of being a bishop is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's said that, that he taught, I think, I think it was, I think it's, a, uh, it's ascribed to him. I think it's apocryphal that, you know, what is it? The road to hell is paved with the skulls of bishops or something like right. that. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, something along those lines. And, and he didn't actually, he didn't actually say that if, if my, my memory serves, but what he did talk about was just how it, it sounds fake. Yeah, right. Exactly. There, there are a lot there. There are more fake St. John Chrysostom quotes than you would imagine. Um, he's like, he's not, not as bad Marilyn as Augustine or, or, or mother Teresa. The, uh, those yeah. are really bad. Francis but, of Assisi. He gets yes. his, a lot of fake quotes. He's yes. like the vegan saint and whatnot. Yeah. No, like, right, that, right, right. That yeah. sounds it sounds too convenient to be real as a quote. Right, but right, yeah. exactly. But there is, but there is a sense in which you know, in which you know, bishops are are. The thing is, is that to the extent that there is an uh, that there is truth there, there yes, there is that that venal and ambitious men are attracted to it. Yes, but also that the 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 responsibility is so enormous that it's extremely mm-hmm. easy to mess up, and so our response to that shouldn't be you know, constantly haranguing and, and just being, and, and being cruel, frankly, uh, it should be uh, prayer and, 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 um, and, and a certain amount of, of honor and piety for someone taking on such a responsibility. Now, of course, if you are like really lusting after that responsibility, there's probably something wrong with you. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, you'd have to but, be but crazy to, the extent to want that it. This is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, the great, the great bishops uh, in history very often had the responsibility foisted on them. St. Ambrose was acclaimed. He wasn't even baptized yet. <laughs> right. Well, that's yeah. like, and the, I don't know how true it is, but that's kind of the message in the movie, the Netflix movie, the two popes that kind of make it seem like this was kind of thrusted upon Pope Francis against his will. I don't know if you saw that. I did. I didn't. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, and that's, and, and I think everyone recognizes there's an appeal to that kind of thing. And I, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't claim to know, to know anything about, uh, you know, the yeah, motivations of, of, we don't claim to know anything either on this podcast. So that, that <laughs> well, then we're, we're all, we're all in, in, in good shape here. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. At a certain point I had to decide, and I haven't always like completely lived by this, but at a certain point I had to decide that I was going to tweet very little or not at all about vatican stuff mm-hmm. uh, yeah and uh and i think yeah, that has generally it's... served me well well and the tone that we take with this and i think that you do a, a really good job of this just in what you talk about normally and then also the book is we know like pretty much all the bad stuff that that other people are sensationalizing like we we don't really have to visit their blogs to find out about the stuff that goes on at the vatican or right. with the bishops like the complaint like we're fully aware of that and our, the message that we take is in view of that. It's not like some naive message that doesn't know, like, oh, if we only knew how bad it was, we would have a different tone. It's like, no, we know, we, we know. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I think that that really shows through, again, in, in the book and then just in the things that you also talk about. And that's where I appreciate, you know, with the, the idea of, you know, restoring Catholic tradition. I, I liked that the wording was on because I agree, it's going to attract people that are kind of looking for that, but what you what a lot of times you end up with is people and I'm, a, I think I'm going to have a pass to say this because I'm a convert is people who are converts who sort of think we're going to restore Catholic tradition. And, I, and I'm the, I'm the force, the saving force that's going to 
going to champion this cause. Like I'm going to lay out a, a program to save the church. Um, we're and save we're the all and save Zach, Americans. Zach, we're all St. Catherine of Siena's and we're all going to take the fight, fight to the Pope. Right. right. Yeah. And so I, I like that you sort of present and, and this is something that we kind of a drum that we beat is you, you present a, a program for the world that clearly works with and through the church as an institution um, and, you know, the church's various organs and everything from the church, of course, the parish, and you get down to the level of the family, you're not proposing, um, you know, I, I call them like anarcho trads, but the sort right. of view that, you know, well, the bishops have at, aren't doing their job, so we'll, we do it for them. And the Pope, right. this, oh, absolutely. You, yeah, yeah, this is not, yeah, this is not a, this is, this is very much explicitly not a book about, um, yeah, like, you know the the lay people the lay people assert the, the laity asserting their their rights and responsibilities against the against the episcopacy, which yes, as know, real Catholics or true Catholics, you, know, you see on Twitter is like there's not that there's only so many true Catholics left to fight these guys. It's like right. okay, well, well, yeah, this is we why I tweeted the other day. This is why I tweeted the other day about how if you if you think that you and your cohort within the church are the only faithful remnant that's proof positive that you aren't because a truly faithful remnant would never dream of damning their fellow Catholics that way. Sure. Right. Yeah. No, that, that, yeah. We, we want everybody to be in and we want everybody to be in good standing. We like, it's a, it's like a team effort guys. Yeah. Well, well it's, it's unfortunate too. Cause I mean, the church is pretty clear about defining herself and it does become a problem when people want to assert the like, you having an incorrect belief would make somebody not a Catholic. You know, I mean, at that point, you're getting into a, a sort of Protestant ecclesiology about how the church even works. Um, right. Yeah. So that's what I, I think. That's really what I appreciate about your writing in general is it's obviously, um, you know, we're not we're not like liberals, and no one would accuse us of being progressive. Um, <laughs> but it it clearly doesn't take the sort of um, pitchfork. Uh, bunker mentality that we get sometimes. And, you know, I think a lot of that, I, I tend to be pretty forgiving when people take that tone. Cause I, I know they've like been through it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, when and, they, when they make people, a career, yeah, out I don't, of it, you I know, without naming like, names, I know that there are people who have been, you know, very seriously hurt by institutions in the church and who, who take yeah. that tone from a perspective of, of that. And while I think it still is often over the top and unhelpful, I can understand that more than, more than other cases where it's, it's very clearly a brand. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, definitely. And that's where, and especially at the lower, because I mean, there's obviously just a whole lot of people who, who read blogs and they read books and they consume media and they post online. They're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have a brand or a following, but you can, you can see them in the comment section of things and you can kind of say, okay, I don't, I don't like this tone. I don't like what they're saying, but you know, they're not, they're just trying to be Catholic in a crazy world. Like they, yeah. they missed the mark, you know, and you probably shouldn't yeah. use those words about bishops, but uh, you know, I, <laughs> right, I, right. I can sort of see that they, yeah. And that's, I think, I mean, in general, I think that's what I like is the, the sort of the book takes a frank look at reality, but still offers a message of hope. And then it's also structured for like 
like the ADHD reader that it's split into parts. So it's like, okay, today I'm going to read the family. Today I'm going to read the parish. Um, right, right, right. So yeah. I, I didn't read it in order. So that was, I liked the way. No, the I, I'm really glad to out. hear that, Zach, because that's, you know, it's, it, you know, it was, it was meant to be something that, you know, at the same time that it flows nicely piece to piece, it also, you can also pick out a chapter and, and each chapter stands alone. Um, so like I, I, you know, it's just something I wasn't even thinking about when I wrote it, but you know, one chapter, I just pulled out a chapter and it's going to be republished in the post-liberal thought people over at Steubenville are going to republish it in their magazine, just things like that. And I didn't even think about when it's writing it, but it, it, it ended up working out really well that way. No, Steubenville's moving. They, they're, they've moved to post-liberalism. I'm just kidding. I don't know. We, no, no. We it's, it's, it's Andrew Willard-Jones and Mark Barnes. Um, oh, very nice. Their, their project out there, yeah. Very cool, very cool. Okay, so before I, I want to get into a few parts of the book, and Zach was nice enough. He Zach was like, listen, uh, I, I Zach understands all this better than me, so he's like, Matt, just take whatever you want Brandon to explain and just have him take as long as he needs to explain it to you. So I'm going to, we have a few things. Uh, we, we've said on the podcast, uh, we're not, at least I have, I, I think Zach too. We're not like huge fans of the word trad yeah, because it doesn't mean anything. And it's basically a meme for what you like and what you don't like. But with that being said, we do, we do go to the Latin mass and we do understand that we are, in some ways, a trad podcast. Uh, so a lot of these things, like I, what I appreciate is I can look look through the the trad lens at a bunch of the stuff, and uh, so that's kind of what I wanted, how I want to talk about some of the the parts in this book. Right off the bat, you use a phrase that caught my attention, and I mean like literally right off the bat on page three. You, <laughs> You use a phrase that caught my attention, irrational optimism. Uh, yeah, and an ira- irrational optimism too often prevailed, leaving the church unprepared for the upheavals and, contra- and contractions to come, yeah. uh, which I thought was, it, it's a great way of describing some people's frustration since things like Vatican II or, you know, the from the 1950s on is it it seemed it seems like when people have frustrations they think they're not being taken seriously because because people would much rather have like an optimistic church where everyone you can do in theory whatever you want it's like you're you know, I, there's a difference it's bad between hope and optimism there's a difference between yeah. hope and optimism and optimism optimism is is about is about the facts on the ground and and, and optimism can be rational or irrational hope mm-hmm. you know as a virtue is is something that we are we are we are to have regardless of the facts on the ground in fact we're sp- sure. especially supposed to have it when the facts on the ground aren't good you know that line that line, I, one thing that was in my mind when I wrote that was a conversation I had with a priest friend here in Pittsburgh who said that the moment that we started to see Catholic birth rates collapsing in the 60s mm-hmm. and 70s, we should have right. started to roll back our institutions. That, that's you something you just can't turn around. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. I ended up saying that later on. Exactly. Yeah. I said that mm-hmm. specifically. Um, and, um, but but we just constantly thought, oh, it'll be all right. Oh, it'll be all right. Oh, you know, the you know, you know, 
we've now the Vatican II. We've matured. We're, we're now. We're now. We have. We have. We have come. We have um, come of age and are ready uh, to right. to uh, to present the faith to the yes. world in this new way, and it's going to be successful. And I'm not saying you know you got to be confident. I, you know you got sure. to be confident. But but you know um, yeah the the sense that the sense that the 1950s was sustainable um, just with the tweaks of the council. Um, in terms of our social and political and cultural position in this country, that was um, that was not reasonable. And and I, you know, I understand that in the moment, you know, it, it this is not as obvious as it is in retrospect. Uh, there are things right now that we will look back on in twenty or thirty or forty years and be like, "Wow, how did you miss that?" Um, yeah. But at the but, same you know, time, man, that... like the situation was was not great, and and, no. and you know a lot of the worst of the I don't want to go down on this tangent too much, but and I did not talk about it in the book very intentionally, but a lot of the worst of the abuse crisis you see in the sixties and seventies, and people would say it's because of the second Vatican council. I think that's, that's not a, that's not a fair reading because there's so much was happening before sure. the council, but when yeah, the church it, existed before the council. Exactly. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, you start to see the rise in these things in the thirties and forties, you know, it's right. something, something, right. Nobody broke, like something the broke in the early like, 20th you know century, not in the late 20th century, but be that right. as it may, mm-hmm. I do think that we can say that, and what my, one of my grand theses in the book when it comes to the narrative for the church is that in America, we got too used to being mainstream, bourgeois, respectable, whatever you want to call it. Uh-huh. Um, and then whenever what was mainstream changed, that was, uh, you know, we were, we were ill-prepared. We were ill-equipped to, um, to respond to that. Now, sure. I think you see that then in the, the, uh, the abuse crisis reaching its apex in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when we are desperately trying to hold on to that respectability and knowing that if all this stuff comes out, we're going to lose it. Um, I, I think that there's, there's, there's a lot to be said for that respectability thesis, really explaining the data there better than, better than just the council, better than just the sexual revolution, better than any mm-hmm. other, you know, we, we had become really attached to being um, mainstream, respectable Americans. And if our institution was to get caught up in these things, um, you know, that was, that was going to, that was going to damage that. Um, and it wasn't even just a cleric thing also like, you know, the stories you hear, you know, out of Pittsburgh or whatever, the, it was the, the, the diocesan attorneys, it, it, it took lay people to, to make, to make all that happen as well. Yeah. People, so people yeah. like crucified Massimo or not, I guess that's dramatic, but people really went after Massimo Fajoli for saying that like, you know, there were a lot of lay people who enabled the, yeah. the abuse crisis. And it's like, no, but he's, if that was a factual statement. He was correct. Absolutely. Like, and it, it was, I mean, there were lawyers, but then there were even people in the secular authority. There were attorneys yeah. general, there were different things. That, Absolutely. That, that was the stories you heard uh, in Pittsburgh was that, you know, some, some, something bad happened. And then the, um, the diocesan uh, council would show up at the courthouse and have a little chat with DA and everyone would then talk to the victim and say, you don't want to do this. Including the DA, you know? (laughs) Right, no, and that's, I mean, that's where that was correct. And so, yeah, a couple points I would kind of go off of what you said. So the first thing about the optimism is it's it's odd to look at some of the things that were written in the 60s about the state of humanity. It's kind of like you talked about, like, we're mature, we're this, we're that. And it's like, you know, we're barely two decades out from the first nuclear weapon to have been dropped. (laughs) We're like in the middle of the arms race. It's like, we're not 
I like the idea that, you know, we had sort of shaken off a, a, a more brutal past or that we'd become more refined. It's like where I, like, I agree that it must just not be clear in the present. And, but it's like, where was that even coming from? This idea that people had become like more peaceful or more anything. Um, but then the second thing, right. When you talk about uh, the respectability aspect and kind of the, where the church had been that, that tracks alongside an episode that Matt and I did a while back when we had a guest where we talked about, you know, the, the story of the church in, in America is it, it's a little bit more boring than saying it was, um, you know, this grand plot by a few bad actors to derail things. It was like this sort of, I mean, a, a lot of the, the main characters were Irish. So we did joke that it was, you know, this big Irish mafia, but um, <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, it's, it's its own story. And to try to point that just to the council is right. it, it does miss the point. And it's not like people got those documents and were like, you know what, let's start, let's start abusing kids. Like, I mean, you know, it just, you really Absolutely. have to think yeah, through yeah. like, how and, did... you know, the way, the way I look at it and, and I, I kind of, I kind of gesture towards this in the book and I've been and you know, I've kind of refined it a little bit more and I've been talking about it in, in doing interviews for the book is that the, is that we were primed by the spirit of the bourgeois, which is not just, a, it's not, first of all, it's not a Marxist phrase. Second of all, I'm not just making it up. It's not just my pet thing. I mean, this, this, this comes straight from Archbishop Sheen. And of course, I also quote uh, Christopher Dawson on this, uh, that, you know, if we're, we're going to talk about infiltration, okay, the infiltration was, mm-hmm. was, was, uh, was the spirit of the bourgeois, the spirit of respectability that had reached its apex in the church in the 40s and 50s, when we have Bing Crosby winning Oscars for playing hero priests in the Hayes Code mm-hmm. written by Catholics to get, because um, yeah. the, the studios wanted uh, the urban Catholics to, to, to be uh, flocking to the theaters. Um, right. Hayes Code was great, though. I will, I will say that I stand the Hayes Code. The rules were lovely. Um, oh, 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 right. Yeah. Well, so there, we, there, we there's, do have there, a rule there is, the anti miscegenation is, is a problem. But other than that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I guess yeah. I forget that part. There was, yeah. like, there was one rule that I remember was that, like, if, if, two, if, if two people are kissing, one of them has to have both feet on the floor. I thought that was such an interesting way. I guess yeah. they must have figured out here's how we avoid a whole lot of immodest, like. Right, right. Happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's so, great. No, it's, it's great stuff. But the. The um, so well, I, I yeah, so that, I'm, not, though, I'm not saying that we, these things uh, are bad, but when we become attached sure. to them, um, then we we are then primed, we're primed to to receive the council badly because if we're if we are already and raring to be as uh, respectable as mainstream as possible, and then the, the 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 church in America is ready to receive the council as basically we're good American Protestants now. Then we don't have to be weird anymore. We don't have to have a Latin anymore. Like we don't have to be, right. you know, foreign and Catholic. We can be American. That that does make sense. That paints the lens through which it's received, and it's it's right. sort of how you end up having the church become, you know, at least aesthetically so, uh, so like cringing American. You know, I mean, like everything distinctive about the church is like. And you do aesthetic. a good job of laying that out through, through the beginning of the book. Like it, it makes a pretty compelling yet simple enough to understand argument of that no like jfk being the catholic president that everybody everybody had a picture of the pope and j every catholic had a picture of the pope and jfk and you make a good argument of like that's not where we want to be yeah like it it's we sure i guess we in theory want 
like I, you know, we do want Catholics in charge, but the idea that it's, it wasn't so much that it was a Catholic in charge. It was a guy in charge who also just happened to be Catholic. Right. Right. And right. It, yeah. Those well, things that's where you get to this like a, identity Catholicism where right. you know, we've made it because a man who, whose family is Catholic is president. And yet mm -hmm. very, very explicitly and publicly said that he was not going to be a Catholic as president. He was, that was yeah. a pure, he explicitly said it was a purely private thing. And that's just, you know, that that's worse than not having a Catholic president. It's far worse. I'd much more rather, I'd much more rather um, be a, the, the frightening, the, I'd much more rather be the, the frightening illiberal m minority than be the papal the, octopus. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank goodness for Thomas Nast, you know. Um, I know all those anti-Catholic um, political cartoons from the past. I'm like, yeah, that's uh, if only, you know. Like <laughs> exactly, that. exactly. Yes. Um, yes. So one thing we have as kind of a rule in this podcast is there's no prerequisites. So we did use some terms that just for, I want to maybe just put some definitions behind, or you can help us with that. So when we say the, the bourgeois spirit, kind of what are we saying there? Yeah. So, you know, you know, what, what I'll, I'll speak of it briefly in, in two terms, but in terms of the way um, Archbishop Sheen described it. And then in the terms of the way, um, very briefly, I don't want to get too much detail about uh, Christopher Dawson. So, um, okay. so you know, Archbishop Sheen in his autobiography talks about how the spirit of the bourgeois had kind of infected the church, and what he was talking about was the bourgeois being like a like a class, like an economic class, a, a, an economic class, but also a kind of a kind of the, the respectability, the, yeah. the the idea of being um, the idea of being a um, is of it. Being, it Colloquially, bougie America. comes out of bourgeoisie, which I think is funny. But um, do we yeah. think? Do we think it's like uh, now? This this is for Zach and I. Is it like how in Downton Abbey at one point they had a lot of money and and uh, but then when they started losing money, they still wanted that that they still wanted that standing in society, even though Robert was hemorrhaging money. Yeah, like I mean, I think that's that, that that's. Yeah, I don't know. That's, I don't know. That's how we more get like that's that. more an aristocratic okay, mindset that like you have okay. a stat, you have a standing that regardless okay. of your actual material circumstances, you are owed um, okay. yeah. by virtue of your lineage. Um, the, gotcha. the spirit of the bourgeois in well, shifting over to Dawson, Dawson would describe, you know, Dawson. He wrote this, the he wrote it in the 20s or 30s, I think the uh, the essay. Um, um, what is it, to Catholicism and the bourgeois mind. Um, mm -hmm. And it's about kind of the spirit of calculation, the spirit of, of, of accumulation, of acquisition, um, where your, your, your merit, your worth is, um, is determined by your, um, your ability to, to acquire, to acquire material goods. Um, it's the spirit of the merchant as opposed to, as opposed in a sense to the spirit of the aristocrat or the spirit of the, of the, 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 the artisan, um, or the, or the peasant, um, yeah, for that the, uh, I think if we um, wanted to make a Downton Abbey comparison, the, uh, the, the villainous, the newspaper owner guy, mm, like gosh. he was maybe a, a fairly bourgeoisie character because, you know, you have this kind of meritocracy. He was trying to marry to raise his social status. He was very rich. He would buy everything up, you know, I mean, not that that's the essence, of it, but maybe that's the closest in that, sure. in the, yeah. the, the Downton Abbey cinematic universe uh, <laughs> where you would have the, in the, the so, yeah. but yeah, so like the, 
like the upper middle class, the property owning right. kind of, yeah. Right, um, and, and so Dawson Dawson contrasted the spirit of the bourgeois with an anti-bourgeois, I think he talked, described it as a Baroque or ecstatic, where it's more, in which, which historically more defined the Catholic countries, especially the Mediterranean countries, which was more about uh, art for art's sake, beauty for beauty's sake, spending um, not recklessly, but spending without without a without a uh, without a constant worry about um, about interest rates and, and how you know and, and how everything was going to work a hundred years down the line, and mm-hmm. uh, whereas the the Protestant ethic the the Protestant work ethic um, it was much more bourgeois, much more much more um, materially prudent, and. and and one of the, the one of the kind of um, the kind of tragic things in the essay is how the the anti the, the bourgeois was always going to overwhelm the anti bourgeois because it was um, it was go- always going to be materially stronger. It was always going to be um, right. It was always going to be uh, able to materially overwhelm that kind of baroque sensibility of of kind of ecstatic self uh, ec- ecstatic uh, ecstatic love ecstatic self giving. Not in the hippie sense, but in the sense of in the sense of a. Uh, uh, an ethic of life that is that is about gift and not about uh, and not about accumulation. Okay. And so one of the yeah. points that I actually make in the book that I uh, kind of really stumbled into as I was writing and I really like and and at some point in my life I would like to maybe go into a little bit more detail on is how the fear of the the fear of Catholicism in America was just as much I think cultural as it was theological or political. So it's part of it. You know, there's the classic sense that you know Catholics were had divided loyalties. They were more loyal to the Pope than they were to to the to the American president and to the American mm-hmm. form of government. But I think there's also the sense. Um, that the Irish, the Italians, uh, to some degree, the Slavs um, were um, chaotic, a chaotic people, a um, a, a a kind of a, a brazen and um, an unkempt people, uh, as opposed to the stoic and staid wasp establishment in America. And so, just as much as the as the um, as uh, Catholics and the Catholic immigration posed a potential political and theological problem, it posed a cultural problem um, that, that was, uh, like I said, with that, that, that feeling, that sense that uh, if, if these people were allowed to run the show, they'd run it into the ground. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Right. You know, and I mean, I guess, uh, I wonder where that, idea came from (laughs) well you know you you meet italians and no i mean that's true i think a lot of it too is that it's hard to to like distill it down to one unique element of saying it's theological or political whatever because obviously yeah the the reformation played out geographically and then when everybody comes to america you know you do have catholicism as sort of the foreigner's religion and then you know you kind of i think irish catholicism had already sort of had to grapple with being respectable to Protestants um, just by, you know, being its proximity to the British empire and being part of that. But, you know, Italian Catholicism, you know, hadn't necessarily had to really uh, do. So, I mean, it's hard to, you can't just split all these things out. There's not like a committee on culture, a committee on Paul, and then they have no overlaps between them. Um, Whereas we, We may try to do that. 
I think, you know, you know, I, I talk about the kind of waspification of American Catholicism. And, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that would be really interesting, and I'm sure there's been studies on, but would be interesting to do more work on, is to what extent the respectability of American Catholicism is just as much a question of American Catholics becoming white as it is of American Catholics becoming uh, respectable in the religious sense. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that, but it gets into, it gets into some complicated territory, but I, I think that's, I, 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 th- I think there's there, I think that, that could be, you know, used as a, as a, as a hermeneutic for understanding, uh, you know, white Catholic responses to certain controversies today, but we don't need to get into that. Yeah, no, I think so too, because, and a lot of people just maybe don't have this context. And I, you know, I certainly, it's not something I had been aware of, um, but, you know, obviously less than a hundred years ago, you wouldn't, if you were talking about, you know, okay, there's white people, you wouldn't have been referring to Italians. And so um, in America, and so you wouldn't, if you were looking at what you would consider to be like, how white people act or what white people's religious tendencies are like the Italians wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been part of that. And, you know, now obviously that's not the case and there's no, you know, I, I, I've said, you know, now they let Italians in the clan. Um, (laughs) But the, uh, um, right. Like Catholicism starts to get this. Yeah. No, I think that that makes total sense that you have this evolving concept of whiteness that starts to like include groups that previously had been sort of, outside the boundaries of it and as they come in you know whiteness maybe changes but also those groups themselves change quite a bit too um and that's where you 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 know people like i i'd known people that have been catholic their whole lives you know kind of culturally and they do believe in god and they like to go to mass and stuff but they they'll move somewhere and it'll just be easier like based on what intersection they're on to go to a lutheran church or a a protestant Mm -hmm. church that's somewhat liturgical and they just won't notice the difference i think a lot of it's because like the the trends, you know, the have all kind of gone along the same lines of the, the music's basically the same, the aesthetics are the same. Like it's all kind of been, uh, you know, suburban white Christianity, right? Suburban white quasi liturgical Christianity, right? And you, you had these things that sort of made it impossible for Catholicism to fully get there, like for instance, Latin or, you know, face certain things. And obviously if you're really wanting to bring Catholicism into the respectable American um, approach to religion, the council does, you could read the council in a way that really allows you to do that. Right, right. Absolutely. And 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 then the experience of American Catholics, and I I think this is probably similar in, in Europe as well, of the council was a lot more radical than the actual documents of the council. And so like, it's like the average American did not experience the Second Vatican Council by reading Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes. They experienced the Second Vatican Council when their children left school one year and they had a, you know, ornate school chapel and they showed up the next year and the altar had been pulled out of the wall and all the murals had been whitewashed and the, um, and the, uh, you know, the entire sanctuary had been reorganized and, and that way everything had changed. Even if theologically and ecclesially everything hadn't changed, it looked right. like everything had changed. And that's, I think a lot of people don't, they don't, they take for granted how disorienting that would have been. Like you experience right. everything that you would experience on the level of the five senses was basically disappeared overnight. Yes. And of course the church was still there. Of course, truth was still truth, but really it was all gone. And it's not like you necessarily had a, a clear you know, in your head, certain things were just unchangeable. So like, of course, it will always be this way. 
and certain things, you know, have always been changeable and certain things are actually unchangeable. But at the time, nobody, you, you really had a sense that everything was changeable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Things, things were up and things seemed to be up in the air that were not and could not be. But whenever, again, your experience of the thing, like you said, through the five senses changes so radically overnight, it's hard not to think that everything's up in the air. Right. And, and, and so that's kind of one of my theses then is again, that we were primed for that because we were ready. We were ready to change in line with modernity. We were, this was not something that second Vatican council doesn't come up out of nowhere. It comes it, uh, the, the reception in the U S emerges out of a desire to, to interpret it that way. Yeah. And there, I mean, there's, there were guitar masses before the council. There right. were churches built with table altars away from the wall in the forties. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard plenty, plenty of um, priests. Uh, they're like FSSP priests who have talked about how, you know, guys like, say what you will about the council, but like this movement had already had oh, its yeah. grasp on America. Like sure. The, the, the certain attitudes that came from the council, uh, grease the wheels a little bit, but like yeah. this was happening and you can, you can see it there. And yeah, I mean, it's not like the first church to have a sort of, um, you know, Archbishop Cranmer style table altar away from the wall was built after the council. The right. Catholic churches were being built like that in America, at least back to the forties. Yep. And so, um, yeah. And that's, I mean, I think that that's, that's such an interesting lens to see all this through. Cause obviously, you know, the church, um, and you know, and I believe providentially began in the time of the Roman empire when it would be able to spread hegemonically. Um, but then obviously the Roman empire collapses and there were, you know, a lot of the problems between East and West sort of come out of that where, you know, at the point that Rome is trying to exert universal jurisdiction after the collapse of the empire, you know, I tell people it would just be like if Topeka, Kansas called DC and was like ordering the president around. It's like, well, right, right, right. Yeah. Who are you guys like what in the world? And, but you know, ultimately it was the church and it's the visible church that, that outlived the empire and was the basis of what followed. And, you know, if, if the sense currently, and I, I think only, more so since the book came out with COVID and everything that's happened that, you know, there's the, the present world is sort of falling away. What will outlast it is the institutional yes. church. And so I, I, that's what I like the most about the layout of the book is it's like, there will still be parishes. Like there may, you know, even in the worst case scenario where somehow there's no, you know, there's some regime change. It's like, there weren't going to be 501 C3s guys like that. Right. 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 You know, but there would, there would still be parishes. There would still be families. There would still, so it, the book imagines how the church is built to sort of outlast the present order. It it predicts the present order. It will outlast the present order. Yeah. Well, outlast the present order. And, and it's the, the lessons, uh, both, both the lessons of the past and the constant accessibility, uh, of grace, um, means that we can thrive in the present, even if it's not in the way that we're used to thriving. This, this is perfect because it leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk about with the book. Uh, authentic innovation. That is the, that's a subtitle of one of the chapters, right? Part of one of the chapters. And this, the reason I, it caught my eye and I messaged you this, Brandon, when I messaged you about the podcast, the day I, the day I read the authentic innovation, that part, 
a few hours before I was having a conversation with a friend about that exact same thing. Now he attends Latin mass in Houston. Uh, I attend in Phoenix and we were talking about this idea that Padre Pio does not have a feast day on the old calendar because the old calendar is old and it is not, it is set because it's the old calendar. Right. And we were talking about 1962 every year. Right. So we were, while, while, don't get me wrong, I'm not blasting that calendar. It would be nice to go to a Latin mass parish and have a feast day for Padre Pio. So, and this is, I don't think I'm alone in saying that. And I think this is a positive thing. This would be a positive thing. The problem with that then becomes this, again, the idea of modernism, the big bad word of modernism, people in the Latin mass community, and I, I, don't blame them and I fall victim to it myself, but you don't want to fall prey to modernism. But at the same time, the Latin mass is not, uh, you, you mentioned something about the Renaissance fair and we talked yeah. about the idea of LARPing. Yeah. The, the Latin mass is not, is not play acting where we all dress up like it's the forties and we all go do this thing. And then we right. go back out into 2020. It should be the Latin mass should be this, evolving thing from the standpoint of it's still as relevant today as it was back then and everything that the church has become within reason and not ridiculously should be involved in that in the latin mass and it it it, this is something i've thought about more and i want to see and i i think it would benefit because again I want everyone, I want everyone to like the Latin mass and I want them to go to it. And that, but I understand the idea that it looks like it's just a bunch of weirdos out in the field every Sunday <laughs> act, acting like a time that never was. Yeah. Well that, you know, that, you know, traditions are not stagnant. A, a stagnant mm-hmm. tradition is a dead tradition. And, and, you know, a, and we are not, you know, the, the liturgy is not meant to be a, an archaeological mission where we discover the way things were at a particular point in time and then reenact that forever. That's not traditionalism. And that's that, such like an important... Said, uh, that's a Renaissance fair. Hammer. Yeah. Right. And that's such an important point to hammer because you'll see people, um, generally they're uh, making a critique of kind of traditional Catholicism, but they'll refer to something that's older as more traditional. But if it wasn't handed on, which is how tradition works then it was not traditional. So something that <laughs> right. you only learned about because of archaeology. And let's pretend that it's accurate because we archaeology tends to dig up a lot of things that never existed. But um, <laughs> that ultimately, like, you tradition, it was clearly not traditional in this sense that perhaps for a time, this is what people did, but it, it was not deemed as fit to hand to the next generation. And, right. and hence, we didn't know about it until you dug this up. Right. So there's a uh, tradition is a, a process that occur, you know, occurs through generations. And so, yeah, yeah but exactly. that's, and, there's and not dynamic. A, traditions are dynamic. They're, they're, they are changing. Again, a tradition is not changing. It's a dead tradition. And so uh, it's not even a tradition at all at that point. And so um, this is why, you know, I, I think I say in the book that, you know, reenacting the rubrics of 1962 with perfect precision is not the end point. It may be a way of maintaining a tradition right. so that at some point it can become a vibrant dynamic tradition again, but we should not, we should not resist things like, and this has just happened where, where uh, Matt, like you said, the, with the Padre Pio mass, like there are now 
they, they, they have been, their approvals have been given to celebrate post-1962 canonized saints in the old right, which is, I think it's great. First of all, it shows that the old right's not going anywhere if we're making, if we, if we are officially making amendments and, and updates. Um, and it also demonstrates that this is, this is a living tradition. It's not, it's not, go, it's not, you know, it's not that you go from, you know, December, uh, December 31st, 1962 to, uh, to January 1st. January 1st, 1962. Yeah. Mm. Um, it is, it is something that is evolving in an organic way. Um, right. So I, I, you know, I like that you go to different Latin mass parishes and you don't see the exact same mass because there are some options and there's just differences in the way priests will celebrate. And that's, I, I think that's good. I don't think that, I don't think that a kind of, I don't think that machine like precision is, is what, is what liturgy necessarily has to be, nor do I think it is what a tradition is. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean, now, and then people will say, oh, well, you just mean you can do whatever you want. No, no, there's, there's, there's a, you know, a living tradition is dynamic, it's changing, it is growing, but it's not being thrown out and treated, treated as if it's nothing, treated, treated willy-nilly. And so um, that seems to me to be right. a description of how human beings operate through the generations. And I, what I think I like too about, um, like for instance, incorporating the saints, because I, I do what, I, you know, I'd be concerned if they wanted to make the liturgical year three years. It was organic in the sense that people were like, we have devotions to these saints. You know, we read Padre Pio. We, you know, we want, and it was, it, while it wasn't a, um, like I would not like to see it play out in a democratic manner. I think that that that's that would be very unpleasant. Um, it, it did sort of evolve out of an actual, you know, devotion to these saints. And so now they're in the calendar. And yet there are differences. Right. And the, the French do it, you know, their way. But at the same time, like you, you still, you don't really need a primer on once you've been to mass a few times to go to it somewhere else. It's, you know, close enough. Um, but there is, yeah, there's a, a, a unique um, a uniqueness to it that shows that, you know, yeah, these people, this is the ritual of these people. They're not showing up for, like you said, like a play act or, you know, it's not a, right. um, right. It is, it is deeply ingrained in their actual lives and the, the rhythm of their, their days. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So uh, it would, I, like I said, I get, I get the idea when people get worried about things, but at the same time, I don't know. It just, like you said, it, it shows that the mass is not evolving, but is continuing to be a part of everyday life. And it, uh, or the Latin, you know, the old mass, the Latin mass, and it, sure. uh, that would make it, I think that would make it, that would make it more appealing to others with the caveat that appealing to others is how you run into dangerous things. But I don't think in this case that that would be the case. Right. Well, um, yeah, this goes to the, especially with the protectors, the, yeah. Well, th this is one of the, Sorry, this, no, that's fine. That's fine. This is, this is one of the things that in, in a, um, uh, an excess here where there is an excess here where you intentionally do things that are not respectable in order to accentuate that. And that's where, that's where you get to the point where it becomes where, you know, it's kind of like the PC anti PC thing where like, 
if your entire politics are organized around being anti-PC, you haven't actually escaped the PC dynamic. You, you haven't actually organized your politics or anything around truth. You're just organizing it around, you're still organizing it around PC. Similarly, whenever right. people kind of decide that, oh, well, we need to be, we need to be more kind of strident and, and mean-spirited precisely in order to counter the, 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 um, the, uh, the order of the day, then um, that, that seems to me to, to, not actually, to not actually challenge it at all. It, um, what we need to be, you know, forgive me for being, for being you know, maybe a bit, um, a bit saccharine and pious, but we need, we, need to be, we need to be Christ-like Christians. That is how you, that, and, and, and embracing the truth, embracing, embracing a, a joyful way of life, a hopeful way of life, a way of life that's defined by self-giving and by, uh, and by charity. Um, that doing something completely different, not organizing ourselves about being against everything that is, but just being something completely different is the, um, is the order of the day. I think Urban Hannon talks about this in his essay in the lamp about how to be a radical where you, 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 you don't, you don't accept the terms that are presented to you on the terms of, of, of secular liberalism. You have to do something completely different. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, it's, you watch, it, it, you, you can see it play out on a different level with just the president. Like the people who I think are most dominated by him are the, the like official resistance people because they can't, right. they can't operate until they know what he tweeted about this morning. So they know what they're opposing today. They, <laughs> yeah, they, don't, yeah. they aren't able to set their own agenda. And I mean, people also do that with Pope Francis, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, you right. can't, uh, absolutely. you cannot escape something by by defining yourself in opposition to it. You, you've, right. you've bound yourself up in it just as much as the people who follow it. Yep. And th I mean, that's why, again, you don't see a lot of difference in, um, in like the quality of arguments you get from the people who like blindly oppose or blindly follow like the president or something. Right. Right, um, right, it's, right. it's pretty much the same. Yeah. yeah. And then you, so. can, you also see this, you also see this in um, the kind of strident, um, um, the strident support of the president precisely because he's crude, precisely because he is uh, obscene, um, because mm -hmm. that kind of cuts yeah. through the cuts through the, 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 the civilized bullshit, you know. Am I allowed to say that? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. So. <laughs> we'll, we'll blurp, we'll bleep it if not. Okay. <laughs> the prodigal son restoring Catholic tradition in an age of deception. I would like to make the pitch that you buy it off his website. He will sign your book with a personal message if you ask him to. Uh, I bought it off Amazon. So don't be like me. <laughs> go go to, this is before I saw that on the website. Go to his website. Uh, yeah. You can find sign, me at brandonmcginley.com is where you can find me. That would be and, helpful. Uh, and you can also find the book if you if you are interested in, in buying it from a potentially more uh, more efficient source, uh, sophiainstitute.com slash prodigal church. I, uh, I try to be as efficient as I can, but I, I cannot match uh, Jeff Bezos, unfortunately. Uh, no one no one can. And that's why he is going to own all the money in the world at some point. Uh, he. <laughs> At Brandon MCG on Twitter, where we've already established he spends 24 hours a day, like all of us. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon, for coming on. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate it, guys. It was a good goes chat. Out and get your book. Zach, anything before we close up? Nope. Buy the book, uh, read it, and tweet your thoughts. If they're nice, you can mention us. If they're not, <laughs> just uh, keep those strictly to Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, guys. We'll talk to you later. <laughs>